Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today, we're taking a step back into the radical landscape of 1968 and to one particularly noteworthy protest, a demonstration against the Vietnam War held in London on the 17th of March, a protest that ended in Grosvenor Square in front of the American embassy. Out of the estimated 30,000 protesters, some 3,000 managed to break through the police cordon into the square where they were confronted by officers on horseback. What resulted was a four hour struggle since dubbed the Battle of Grosvenor Square, an eruption that some have argued changed protest in the UK forever. Among the many memorable images from that day was one of a single protester, a young woman with long blonde hair and white boots who's approaching a mounted policeman in the midst of the mayhem her arms outstretched towards the horse's reins. The man taking the photograph was veteran photographer David Hearn. The woman approaching the horse was Jay Ginn. My History Workshop colleague, Andrew Whitehead, has been speaking to both of them in the context of his research into the British New Left, and he arranged for the interviews you're about to hear. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Mary Beth, how are you? Hi, I'm great, thanks. So I wondered if we could just, if you could say a bit about how you unearthed the tale of the two individuals who created this extraordinary image. Well, by chance, by serendipity, as all the best things arise, I was, I'm doing some work on the oral history of the, the British New Left. And I'm, I was looking at the Committee of 100, which was a direct action peace movement in the early 1960s. And I met one of their veterans, Jay Ginn, who we're going to be hearing from much more later. And I went to see her and she shared her memories. And then I just said, so were you at Grosvenor Square as well, at those really turbulent anti-Vietnam War protests? And she said, haven't you seen my photograph? And she went away and got from her, her library shelves this sort of coffee table book, photographs of the 1960s. And she turned to one and it was of her but not just off her, but she's approaching the police horses by herself in the middle of this turbulence in Grosvenor Square, as all the other protesters you can see in the shot are cowering away from these mounted police. And it's very striking. She's blonde haired. She's wearing white boots. She is entirely by herself. And she told me the story behind it. And that through that, I made contact with David Hearn, who's the documentary photographer who took that photograph a very well-established documentary photographer who's been working since the mid-1950s, who did a lot of work with the Beatles. He was at the Isle of Wight. He did a lot with the counterculture. And he was with this protest from start at Trafalgar Square to finish at Grosvenor Square. And you spoke to David Hearn just in the last couple of days. He didn't remember this particular photograph, but he does remember, I'm sure, Grosvenor Square very vividly. Yeah, he does. And he had uh, he, he was a freelance at the time and he was quite determined to photograph the entire event. So he didn't just plonk himself down in one particular location. 
he was at Trafalgar Square. He was photographing Vanessa Redgrave and Tariq Ali at the front of the march. Then he was determined to dash to Grosvenor Square to get there before the police sealed off the entire square and then photographed the battle. And it, it really was a battle really from behind police lines and got hurt himself quite badly cut by something that seems to have been thrown from somebody in the crowd. So he was in the thick of it, and his photographs give a sense of what it was like to be in the thick of that turmoil. And here's Andrew's conversation with David Hearn describing that moment of turmoil. If you were going to do this on, on the Grosvenor Square march, you had to be able to mentally work out what it was going to be. You knew it was going to start in Trafalgar Square. You knew it was going to go you could get an outline of where the march went, and you knew it was going to end up in front of the American embassy. So you knew the route. You also knew the major participants. You knew that uh, Vanessa Bedgrave was going to be there. You knew Tarek Ali was going to be there. So you knew you needed to photograph those. I'd shot the pictures of, of Vanessa and et cetera, et cetera. And then I cycled down to Grosvenor Square, dumped my bag, got inside the police cordon so that my back was to the American embassy. And then as the march came, everything tightened up. And you suddenly realised it was literally only about 30 square yards of, you know, where the horses are. It's actually a very small area which was surrounded by the police and the people. And I was in that thing. And I think there was only one other photographer in there or something like that, you know, simply because they couldn't get in. I'd got in early. So you were behind the police line, so to speak. I was behind the police line, yes, with my back to the embassy. And, and I, I was in that little area where the horses were. And then, obviously, you, you, you then shoot the pictures. I was quite badly hurt in that I was hit over the head with something. I'm not quite sure what. But although I didn't know it at the time, I was bleeding quite badly, apparently. So as much as anything, you know, the, the pictures are easy. I mean, if you're there... And, and you have experience, etc. You see something, you take a picture of it. But you have to be in the right place and you have to be there at the right time. And that in that sort of situation is where the skill comes from. So I want to turn to the conversation that we recorded with Jay. She's a remarkable person. And I guess I, want, I wondered... Had you seen the photograph before you met up with her? Was, was it she who introduced you to it? No, it was absolutely she who showed me the photograph when I started talking about whether she'd been involved in the anti-Vietnam War protests. Her history of activism goes back to the very early 60s and some of the uh, sit-down peace demonstrations in Whitehall, some of, the, some of the demonstrations at missile bases, she was arrested several times. She spent a few days in Holloway Jail after the occupation of the Greek embassy. That was in 1967 when the colonels seized power, a military coup in Greece. So she was a veteran of those protests. And she was also on uh, on the libertarian left. She was in a group called Solidarity, quite a small group, but quite influential. It had broken away from I mean, its intellectual genealogy was breaking away from Trotskyism to be a sort of libertarian Marxist group. And it pioneered new forms of activity and protest. And it was a link between various different aspects of 1960s 
protest and uh, radicalism. I mean, one of the things I guess that struck me when I was listening to the conversation after we'd recorded it was that she's uh, she's remarkably humble and she downplays, well, she describes herself as one of the crowd. And it did make me think about the vibrancy of activist lives, even those that, you know, don't make the headlines necessarily. Well, she's unusual because she she remains an activist. She's very active in local politics. She's active to a degree in national politics. And she's clearly very proud of what she did in the 60s. And, and that propelled her into a new career, really. She became a, a student, studied sociology, got a PhD, did work on gender, gender and old age in particular. And she was just one of the crowd, but she was in a very small group, a libertarian group. But one of the things I thought was quite striking is it was a libertarian group and it didn't really believe in the sort of the cult of the leader. And after all, that's one of the reasons why its founders had broken away both from Stalinism and Trotskyism. And yet the women activists had virtually no role in the organization's public profile. And they were basically doing the duplicating, the copying and the distributing. It was deeply as as Jay acknowledges it was you know deeply traditional I mean even though this was the 1960s it's before second wave feminism but it just strikingly replicates gender division within society at large rather than challenging it and now here's our conversation with Jay Ginn so Andrew and I thought we had a brief conversation yesterday and we thought that the logical place to start is with the photograph of you in Grosvenor Square in March 1968. And if you could just sort of talk us through it, what were you doing and how did you get there? I think we marched there and had quite a job getting into the square, but we did burst through into the square we still weren't threatening the embassy. We were, there was a, a hedge and a road between us and the embassy. Despite that, the police on horseback went AWOL. They seemed to think that this was the battle to end all battles. They were dangerously galloping around in all directions, hitting people on the shoulders and the heads. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to do something to stop it. I know I was towards the southern side of the square. People were moving in from Oxford Street, which is north of Grosvenor Square. And somehow I got to the southern side. I don't I can't remember exactly how I got through the hedge, but I was on the southern side. And that's why I was in a position to be facing the mayhem that was going on at the northern edge where people were still pushing to get in. And and that's where people were getting hit and charged up by horses. So I decided to show people how to stop the horses. And in the picture, you can see me about to grab the reins, which can immobilise a horse. Uh, Luckily, I know enough about horses to know that the person holding the reins at their head is the one in control. You're also far enough away from the rider that he can't hit you because you're standing right in front of the horse's head. So that's what I was about to do. And I, I think I succeeded in holding the horse for a little while and hoped that other people would follow suit. However, At some point, the police recognised that I was a bit of a threat to their game. 
and they sent one person to go and stop me. So I had to run. And obviously on a horse, he was able to catch up, grabbed me by the collar. And at that point, a fellow demonstrator who knew me grabbed me around the waist, pulled me away, nearly pulled the horseman off his horse, and I was rescued. Jay, it's it's a remarkable photograph because there you are alone facing the police and you can see in one corner of the photograph there's uh, other demonstrators who are cowering away in complete Mm. terror as the police horse is advancing them and you seem purposeful and confident and composed. I am because I'm used to horses and I know that other people are frightened of horses irrationally I was trying to show people that you don't need to be frightened of the horse. It's the policeman that's the, the danger. And if you can immobilise him on his horse, he's powerless. But you look very brave. It must have been a really courageous thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not brave. If you understand horses, you know when you're safe. And were you an experienced protester by the time you approached that horse? This wasn't the first march you'd been on. Yes, I'm pretty good at getting through police lines and making sure I've got an escape route as well so I don't get kettled. I always keep an eye out for police tactics. You can see when they're having a conference and deciding how to defeat us. And if you watch it, you can see them moving and make sure you react before they've got you cornered. But to get into Grosvenor Square, you, when you say you got through police lines, you basically fought your way through police lines. Yes, we all did. And, and what did that involve? A pushing mainly, just pushing through. It, it was quite a big march and a very determined one. People are generally not frightened of pushing the police, but they Except are frightened the, the, of the horses. Yeah, but the police have got truncheons. Yes, I think that was mainly the mounted police who were using the truncheons. The the remainder of the police were just trying to stop us by linking their arms and creating a fence. And were you in the front line as you approached the police cordon? That I can't remember. And if you don't mind me saying, I'm I'm not a great expert on fashion, but looking at the photograph, you've got these rather (laughs) smart white booties on. (laughs) At that time... Everybody was wearing white boots. They were cheap, they were plastic, and you could wash the mud off very easily. So maybe remind us, how old around about were you in that photograph, 1968? I was born in 1939. So 29? Something like that. Yeah. And and in, in terms of how how your life had brought you from... Well, I mean, maybe just back up to what you've already said, that you were used to being around horses. What had your early life involved and at what point did did politics and protest become part of it? Well, I was being put on wild ponies from a very young age, about five, six, because I was very small and light and I did as I was told and I didn't frighten the horses. But those were ponies. However, most horses respond to somebody being calm and firm. And that stood me in good stead. I had learned how to be around horses, how to keep them calm. And when did you get involved in protest? That was in my early 20s. I worked at Imperial College and there were a lot of students active there. And I met my first partner there, who was in the Syndicalist Workers' Federation. 
And I also joined the Committee of 100, met people who belong to Solidarity. You mentioned the Committee of 100. I think probably some of the people who are listening into the podcast won't know what that was. So how would you describe that? It arose out of CND and the Direct Action Group, who had been invading military bases and talking to soldiers and trying to avoid being charged with sedition. And they formed the Committee of 100, and I joined as soon as I knew about it. I wasn't one of the inner circle at all, but I supported all the demonstrations, and I tried to recruit people to the series of sit-downs that we had in Whitehall. This was the non-violent direct action that we hoped would fill the jails. Because we were a committee of 100 and more, we hoped that we could avoid the leading people being picked off by the police. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. The police did pick off the organisers and they did serve heavy sentences in jail. And did you fill the jails yourself? No, I managed to escape arrest. I think it was known that I probably wasn't anybody prominent, but I did get arrested quite a few times and and then just released breach of the peace, causing a disturbance, that sort of thing. Was it exciting being on Committee of 100 sit-ins? It seemed necessary. At the time, I don't know if I'm just speaking for myself, but I believe there was an atmosphere of terrible fear that was going to be a nuclear war. I I felt that's where I had to be. It was about a brave attempt to save first Britain by changing the policy and then persuading other countries to join in and renounce nuclear weapons. We were genuinely frightened that nuclear war was going to take place, especially after the Cuba standoff. Do you remember that? Yes, I do indeed. And that was some years earlier than the Grosvenor Square demonstration, but it was also in front of the American embassy. And I was arrested on that occasion and I had to go to court on the Monday morning. And uh, as a result of that, lost my job. That was how I got to be working at Imperial College because people there were all very much in favour. They were all comrades and they found a vacancy for me. I mean, it strikes me that the the story you're telling is maybe atypical for a young woman born 1939. And I'm wondering whether your sort of awareness, your political awareness and awareness of the threat of nuclear war, whether that had always been with you, came was encouraged or discussed in your family, or if that was something you came to on your own. It wasn't on my own and it wasn't with my family. It was the people I was mixing with. We were all very left wing. We loved the folk songs of Peggy Seeger and Ewan McColl. And we were all deeply embedded in making a better, safer society all round. Not spending money on weapons, but spending money on making things better, more equal for everybody. And you became associated with a group called Solidarity. What was that group? I believe it started off as a group of very disillusioned Marxists who had gone through the Trotskyist experience and its authoritarianism, who were very strongly anti-authoritarian. So it, it was called libertarian Marxism. It was a return to Marxism without the dreadful results of Stalinism and Trotskyism. And there were a few women in there, and most of us had not gone through that same experience. So We were pretty much on the sidelines. Did you resent that? No, because I recognised I wasn't capable of discussing Das Kapital. I hadn't read it. (laughs) 
I wasn't as immersed in the literature as other people were. I didn't know the language or the arguments, but I listened and tried to learn. But as a libertarian group, I I would have thought Solidarity would champion feminism and want to develop the profile of women in its membership and be attractive to other potential women recruits. I'm afraid not. It didn't work like that. (laughs) That was before the wave of feminism that came up in the 70s. So it was very rare for a woman to be asked to write an article or even permitted to do so. So what did you do then? It sounds like you almost were the administration fodder. You were doing the typing (laughs) and duplicating the leaflets. Yes, I was doing a lot of leafleting. I'd get out to to picket lines and leaflet them with Solidarity's take on their dispute, which was always supportive of the strike. Whether it did any good, I don't know. It might have been a car factory, there was a strike, and some of us would go there and piled up with leaflets. We were trying to recruit everybody into Solidarity's way of thinking. And what kind of success did you have with that? Very little, I think. Not that we didn't persuade some people, but on the whole, I think it was too much. People just wanted to solve their own dispute and then get back to work. They didn't really want to get involved in changing society from a capitalist one to a socialist one. Can I ask about... And I'm not sure of the chronology here, but your involvement in various forms of direct action, which you've talked about with the Committee of 100 and and Solidarity. And at some point you became involved with the Spies for Peace. Is that right? I wasn't very involved in that I knew nothing about it until it exploded in the news. And then, of course, the next task was to get reprinting as fast as possible so that we could distribute what the Spies for Peace had done all over the country and encourage people in other districts to find their local regional seat of government, to find where it was, to expose it, and to show how the government had abandoned the population in the event of nuclear war. Their very feeble attempts at saying, put paper over your windows, hide under the stairs, keep some supplies of clean water because you may need that, You won't be able to leave the house if there's a nuclear war. Obviously, the population was going to die, as did people in Hiroshima. And a few people, the top people, the elite, if you like, would save themselves by being in a regional seat of government. We thought people ought to know that government was not interested in our fate. And do you think that protest made an impact? You were saying earlier that actually a lot of what Solidarity did perhaps didn't have a lot of purpose, but do you think this changed things at all? I think it must have altered people's perception of government being irresponsible about its own population. I hope that got across to everybody. And maybe people's cynical view of government now is part of the result. I think people trust government a lot less have a lot less respect for people in power than they used to have. And did you find that work with Spice for Peace to be exciting? Because, you, again, you were saying earlier that you were doing things out of a sense of duty rather than a sense of enthusiasm. Oh, I was very enthusiastic about this. I would have liked to do more and more and more to expose what the government was doing. And so I not only duplicated a lot, I gave out a lot of leaflets, genuinely spread it around as much as I could. And that that was worthwhile work to do. Yes, I enjoyed doing that. And how did your political activism continue as we get closer to the middle and, and latter part of the 1960s? So you're involved in the 
in the peace movement in direct action in in the early 60s. What happens after that as we get closer to 1968? I think the next big event that I can remember was the campaign to save Greece now, which was organised mainly by Terry Chandler who was very close to the Spice for Peace and Solidarity and the Committee of 100, of course. We had a big demonstration when the, I think it was the King and Queen of Greece came, it was before the Colonel's coup, and we felt it was a very authoritarian society where the military were gaining too much control. And the major event that happened was that Donald Ruham was arrested at a demonstration and accused of holding a brick being prepared to throw a brick. But he was too canny for the police and he found the evidence that he'd been planted with a brick, a half brick, in fact. And that made for a major scandal, which I think dented trust in the Metropolitan Police, who were found guilty under Inspector Challoner of routinely going around and planting knives, drugs and weapons on people that they believed to be criminal. And you were involved in the occupation of the Greek embassy in London? Yes, that was later when the colonel's coup happened. Um, We had seen people being murdered in Greece, in particular Lambrakis, who was a peace campaigner. So I was going round with my pollets log saying, rest in peace, Lambrakis, to wake people up to what was happening in Greece. Then the colonels took over and we decided, again led by Terry Chandler, We decided we would occupy the Greek embassy and set up a Radio Free Greece in there upstairs. So it was secretly organised from Committee of 100 members and we all kept it quiet and turned up, got into a lorry, were taken to the Greek embassy and at the signal opened the back door, jumped out and ran up to the front door. What happened before we got out was that a couple of Greek young women went to the embassy, knocked on the door and offered daffodils as an Easter greeting. And as the door was open, we all rushed in. And those who were technically minded went upstairs straight away to set up Radio Free Greece. The rest of us just occupied the embassy and barricaded the doors and windows. We didn't do any damage, I hasten to add. Not to people, nor to property. And did you manage to broadcast from the embassy building? I don't think they had the time to get it going. So what happened once you got in there? We we were determined to hold the siege as long as we could. But unfortunately, the police did manage to get in somehow and went around arresting us all and removing cameras and taking out the film. Not that there was anything secret on it. Well, they were just being their bloody-minded usual selves and they got my camera from me by nearly breaking my arm. And then you were taken to the police station? Yes, and we were charged with all sorts of things, a whole long list of charges, whatever they could drag out of their bin (laughs) of ancient acts being made. In the end, that was pared down. I think the leaders got clobbered and I had to pay a fine of £100. It took months before we went to court, uh, police withdrawing most of the charges that wouldn't stick. But when it came to it, I was just fined £100, and I don't know, two or three people went to prison, very sadly. Uh, when when was it that you went to Holloway Jail? Um, well, that I wasn't actually sent to jail, but the police decided that they would not give us bail, so we went to Holloway and the men to Scrubs, I think, on remand. But it was like being in jail. We were forced to put on prison uniform, prison shoes, 
prison, everything. We were searched. We had our contraceptive pills removed. This was six women. We all protested at that. And the guards laughed and said, oh, don't worry, you won't be having sex in here. Ha, ha, ha. And you can see the doctor on Monday to get your pills back. So what was happening was they were punishing us before trial. How did you feel about that? Well, it's what you come to expect, isn't it? (laughs) You don't expect justice to operate when the police and the government are all aiming to make your life difficult. What about Assange now? What justice has Assange ever had? If the state demands that you be treated as an enemy, that's what happens. And justice is going out the window. Did this experience of you know making this quite ambitious attempt to occupy an embassy and then being forcibly removed and, and spending some time at least on remand and encountering the police in that way, did it do you think it changed your outlook in any way or radicalized you further? It's radicalized me further. I've realized the lengths to which the authorities will go when they want to win and try and squash you and frighten you and punish you without a trial. So I wasn't surprised about what happened to Julian Assange, to the terrible injustice that has been done to a whistleblower while the people who have committed war crimes get off scot-free. And we're seeing the same now in Australia with um, David McBride, who was in the military and saw crimes committed in Afghanistan and blew the whistle on them. And now he is being persecuted instead of the people who were murdering and torturing Afghans, innocent Afghans. When you were in the Committee of 100, that was about nonviolent protest and the Greek embassy occupation. Again, it was not an act of violence. Grosvenor Square, that protest pushing through the police lines, there was an element of violence there. It wasn't a Gandhian-type non-violent protest at all, was it? Well, I think it was because the people behind everybody didn't know what was happening at the front. So they were pushing. They didn't know what their pushing was doing to the people who were facing the police and who could not get out of the way. So if there was violence, it, it was on your back being pushed into the police lines. Would you still but support that, non-violent protest? I still believe firmly in non-violent protest. I would never be violent. When you talk about, I mean, clearly it seems from what you're saying that this experience of taking part in direct action in the 60s, it it radicalized you, as you've said. It it sounds like you're, maybe this is just labeling things retrospectively, but it sounds like your awareness of the way that power works became much more global as a consequence of what you were doing, you know, starting with the UK and then expanding to protesting what's happening in Greece. I'm wondering at what stage you became aware of a a movement for women's liberation arising out of all of that and what your attitude towards it was. Can I just go back to my time in Holloway for a moment? Yeah. We were all women in there. And I heard a lot of the stories from the other women prisoners, most of whom shouldn't have been in prison at all. Some were prostitutes who, although I wish prostitution didn't exist, it was hardly a crime, in my view, that warranted putting people in prison. Then there were other people who had inadvertently broken some rule, committed contempt of court and got put in prison. 
And time after time, I saw each woman as a victim of injustice and waste of taxpayers' money in putting them into prison. So uh, probably the same applies to men's jails, I don't know. But I thought most of the people in Holloway shouldn't have been there. And I was very sympathetic to all these women. And they befriended us, even though they didn't know anything at all about our politics. They befriended and supported us. That well, sounds like a very powerful experience. But you wanted to go on to women's liberation. Well, I'd always considered myself liberated anyway in that context. So it was very nice to have a lot of other people feeling the same because I never would have succumbed to persuasion to be uh, under somebody else's thumb, if you like. I I've always considered women had equal rights and that we should stand firm and support them. That goes way back before the 1970s. But when the women's movement started, were you part of it? Did you go along to the meetings and the demonstrations? Oh, yes. I certainly did. I, I thoroughly approved of it. I have mentioned to you before that a couple of women took me aside and said, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, yes. And they said, well, how can you have a boyfriend and be a liberated woman? And I said, well, I just don't see the contradiction at all. One can have an equal partnership. One should have an equal partnership. And did you remain politically active throughout your life? As much as possible, when I had children to look after, my activity took a different turn. I joined Parents Anonymous, which was a new group set up to help parents who are feeling desperate and who need to talk to somebody on the phone. It's a bit like a Samaritans for parents. So it could be any time of day or night you would get phoned. And we had a bit of training in non-directive listening and being supportive and encouraging people to reflect on their situation without telling anybody what to do. After that, I helped to set up a women's aid refuge locally because my work had to be local with young children until they were old enough to come with me to demonstrations, which later on they did. I think they thought it was quite fun going up to Wapping and um, shouting scab at the lorries. That was 1985, I think. But it, it's quite constricting when you've got a responsibility for children. And during the miners' strike, unfortunately, I was arrested. We were up in Yorkshire and I was with the student group. We'd gone up by coach and there were a lot of young men there. And as you probably know, young men are much more foolish than women. And some of them were throwing stones at the police. They wanted to battle. They were getting bored and they wanted to fight. I didn't approve of this for a moment. I climbed up a nearby bank and observed the situation regretfully. And inevitably, at some point, the police charged. By that time, I happened to be down on the ground. I wasn't throwing stones or anything, but I was with a young Canadian woman who was terrified. And I said to her, don't worry, I'll stay with you. And I did. So when the police charged and we started running, unfortunately, she fell over and I couldn't leave her. So I stayed there and was arrested with her. And so we both were charged. Well, I was charged with throwing stones in the end. I don't know what she was charged with, but they let her go because she was Canadian anyway. She was a young woman of 22, very small, very frightened. And uh, But I was arrested and accused of throwing stones. I hadn't done anything to deserve it. I'm non-violent, as you know. I was remanded on bail and then I had to go to court and the magistrate was giving everybody a guilty verdict without any hesitation. Whatever they were accused of, 
they were guilty. It was as bad as that. Minor after minor was accused, sent down for two or three months in jail, sometimes six months. And I was given three months. But luckily, as I was a LSE student, my tutor knew about it and word got out and a trainee solicitor came up to court. She immediately jumped up as I was being sent down to the cells and begged leave to appeal. That was granted. And by the time I went back some months later, everything had changed. And it was quite clear from the outset that I was going to be found not guilty. The police could see that they were beaten. Their evidence was rubbish. Their two accounts of the two police had the same spelling mistakes in them. They were word for word. I think they were just told what to write by somebody senior on the assumption that the magistrate would find me guilty. It sounds like you, I mean, just, just going from the where we started with the march in Grosvenor Square to that moment, that, that one of the things that's consistent is that you, you don't seem to have a lot of fear and, and you have a lot of calm, you know, to be able to stay, well, maybe it's, one would like to hope that we would all do it, but to stay with someone who's fallen, who's an injured person and who's vulnerable in a very, very fraught and chaotic and potentially dangerous situation that does take a a, a real capacity for equanimity in the midst of a lot of disruption and and that's that's something that you seem to have had throughout all this I just seem to have been born with it um I was never frightened of anything and looking back now I mean you've had a life that has brought you you've said you were never one of the major players, but you've been there throughout decades of protest and political engagement. Do you think your values have remained the same, your belief in direct action? Is that something you would still, you know, pass on to your children and grandchildren? Well, I don't lecture my grandchildren or my children They must take what they want to from my life. But lots of people, most of my friends believe in nonviolent direct action and they believe in justice and they passionately want to see Julian Assange freed from the dreadful persecution. And indeed, all the people who are wrongly jailed. I have many friends who are Amnesty International. I know a lot of people who would do what I've done and more to save other people. Can I just add one thing? Yeah. You've talked about fearlessness, Mm. and it's partly because I always remembered not to do anything or say anything that I couldn't defend in public. And so because I'm certain that I haven't done anything wrong, I don't fear for anything. I know that my trade union friends would support me and other good people would support me. That's a very moral statement. It's just a way of life. It makes life less complicated. I don't have dirty secrets anywhere. I don't have schemes. Everything's open and above board. Coming back to the the photograph of you in Grosvenor Square, how did you find out about it? Did you know as soon as it was taken that there was this rather iconic image which featured you? I knew nothing about the photograph at all. And I was astonished when, years later, a friend of mine was browsing in Charing Cross bookshops, came across this book about 1968, the Magnum book, flipped through the pages and recognised me and bought the book for me. Isn't that extraordinary? It is extraordinary. But how do you feel about it now when you look back at that image? Um, 
I'm very glad the photographer was there. I'm very grateful to David Hearn for allowing me to make a print of it. And I've actually done two paintings at the suggestion of my art tutor, who thought it was quite fascinating. Do you think it captures you? Do you think it captures a a moment in your life and an element of what your life has been about? It does, actually, yes. I'm very pleased to have that photograph. Would you do it again? Of course I would. I think they've got probably longer truncheons now, the horse, to prevent this sort of thing happening. But if I had the opportunity, I would certainly do it again. Many thanks to Jay Ginn and David Hearn for taking part in these conversations and to Andrew Whitehead for making the whole thing happen. You can read more about all of them on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on X or Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.